Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. LR and Benji here. This show is always presented by Zwift, the online cycling platform that makes training fun. We have one of these podcasts a year, the big Tour de France wrap-up. That's the Men's Tour de France and the Tour de France Fan Mavic Zwift all in one podcast. We've got some, we're doing a little bit, little bit differently. Of course, we'll have the rapid fire stage review as well as I'll speak a little bit more about the Yumbo Visma consultancy at the start of this podcast. But we'll get into a lot of topical stuff like, was this the best Tour de France ever or the best one we've watched? We are but 12 years old. How Wout Van Aert won the green jersey? Will the competition change next year? How did Jonas Vingegaard pull off the upset in the Tour de France? Who was the best actual sprinter? We'll talk about KOM again. I think that's Benji and I's like, favorite topic is complaining about KOM points distribution. And then we'll review Ineos and UAE and Pogacar's Tour de France as well, what they could have done differently, what we expect them to do differently next year as well. There'll be a little bit more of a forward-focused uh, look in this podcast but before we get into that the racing the month of racing concluded yesterday thanks to everyone that checked out our Twitter France fam of Swift content on the podcast or on the legendary YouTube channel but the finish line is just the beginning for those riders congrats to Annemiek van Vleuten for taking out the yellow jersey as well as supporting LRCP Zwift to supporting the Twitter France fam for another three years so as I said Thanks to everyone for tuning in, not just to our content, but particularly to the, the race live or reading about the race or consuming the race in any fashion because that shows demand for the sport and that's how the sport can grow and the race can keep growing and get bigger and better in years to come. So if you'd like to support Zwift and give easy, accessible indoor riding a go, head to Zwift.com for your free seven-day trial. But before we get into that, here's a little extra word I had on the Yumbo Visma consultancy. So as I said, I'd like to provide some more information about our consultancy work, address some concerns you may have had, as well as how we plan on working in the future. But thanks to so many of you that reached out with supportive comments, uh, really, really appreciate it, and the feedback, we've discussed it, and we've taken it on board. So just to give some clear information about that consultancy work with Yumbo Visma, I'd reiterate, we had an objectivity clause in the contract that re- gave us the right or we retain the right to say whatever we like on the podcast or elsewhere and Jumbo Visma never had any input into anything said on the podcast or other content the agreement which in this case it was solely Benji and I who work with Jumbo Visma was to provide them with video analysis data and strategy advice so the product or service whatever you want to call it to consulting teams is distinct or different from the podcast Lantern Rouge YouTube channel or other media stuff so I believe and still do that working with teams will make the podcast and the videos better. It gives us unique insight into how the teams operate, which should ultimately improve our knowledge base and the quality of the content in the long term. And also it already has in the short to medium term. But I can understand and appreciate that some of you felt disappointed at not having been informed earlier of this arrangement. And I don't take it for granted that many of you listen to us almost maybe every day and that the podcast or the highlight videos or other stuff, they're an essential companion to your enjoyment of cycling. And so with that being said and your feedback taken on board, I'd like to outline a few points on how consultancy will be dealt with moving forward if Benji or I choose to continue doing such work. So firstly, in all future consultancy work, I or we will disclose the existence of the arrangement publicly 
at the time we enter the agreement and also uh, I'll disclose when such agreements have come to an end. And secondly, this is already the case, but any consultancy contract will always contain an objectivity clause so that the work doesn't constrain our ability to provide objective race analysis or do what we do on the podcast or elsewhere. And thirdly, and this is, again, already the case, but all data or process data that has been used or will be used in the consultancy consultancy agreements is derived from publicly available sources, except obviously where the relevant client team provides us with the data. Um, so hopefully this answers any questions you may have had or alleviates some concerns. We appreciate all the feedback we've received on it. And yeah, I'd like to say thank you to the you for helping grow for this podcast to be so big. And whilst uh, it has grown really fast, as well as the Lantern Rouge YouTube channel. It still is the work of a very few individuals who work hard rather than being like a large media corporation. But we will keep trying to produce the most entertaining and unique content on Pro Cycling, and we hope that you will continue to enjoy it along with us. And so now we'll get into the Tour de France recap. But now that the dust has settled, Benji, on the Tour de France month, where do you think my charger is for my camera? There were some good answers yesterday. Where do you think it is? I actually don't know. I, I honestly don't have a clue. I think it can be found with the, the, great, uh, the great schedule of Aramburu during the season in existence because um, he didn't have that. <laughs> well, no, he, did well, he, he did races. He did races. Not the great ones. <laughs> this guy can't catch a break. It's a Tour de France recap. He didn't even do the race. Or did he? He didn't. Did he? he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> he was supposed <laughs> he just, to. He was just supposed roasted. to. He really? was supposed to do the Tour de France and he was taken out to take UCI points in different races. There weren't <laughs> any races during the Tour de France. There's the Basque race yesterday, which he could have done anyway. It's oh, pointless. I'm um, sad. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the actual answer, wrong answer is only from Mooship, who said the, the battery charger was labeled Patrick and Patrick Lefebvre stole it, thinking it was his in Paris. And so yep. it's somewhere in a... Um, Quickstep Alpha Vinyl livery BMW in the ether in the back seat. That's the actual answer. Anyway, rapid fire recap. You know how we do it. And you'll probably have forgotten all these stages. Stage one, the TT. Wet conditions, huge upset. Yves Lampart wins the TT. Laporte crashes. Lampart takes the yellow jersey. He keeps it for just a singular day because on stage two, Jakobsen does the business back-to-back. Quickstep wins, wins the first sprint in Nyborg. The, uh, the bridge was a bit of a flop, but Van Aert comes second, overperforms in the sprint and takes the yellow jersey on bonus second stage three. Another sprint, Groenewegen wins it. Back-to-back Dutch, only Dutch speakers won the first four stages, mental. Uh, Van Aert still in the jersey. Transition day, Van Aert wins the Calais stage, attacking on that hill, doesn't wait for Vingegaard, but yeah, apparently repeat, and it looks like Jumbo, uh, the stronger, maybe the strongest team in the race. Simon Clark wins from the break in the Paris-Roubaix stage. Pagacha takes 13 seconds and looks impeccable. Roglic crashes, Hay crashes out, and Jonas and the other TC contenders just sort of survive. Uh, stage six to long wheat, Pagacha wins, bonus seconds, takes yellow. Stage seven, Planche de Belfi, Pagacha wins, bonus seconds, but he can't gap Vingegaard who attacks him. Stage eight to Lausanne, Van Aert wins, Pagacha third, four bonus seconds. Stage nine, he's now got like a 30, 40 second lead. 
uh, on Vingegaard. And Roglic is looking okay on Super Planche, but not so okay on maybe Stage 9, where Jungels wins. Despite UAE pacing hard all day, they can't catch the break. It's a little bit curious. Uh, then Stage 10, the same sort of thing happens. They Should we, should we not? Is what Pagacha said in the interview afterwards. Court wins, beats Schultz in the bike throw in the break stage. Mejev Pagacha keeps the jersey. Kamina doesn't win it by 11 seconds. Then the Grenoble stage. The sort of this will be a historic stage where Yumbo rolled attacks after Telegraph with Roglic and Vingegaard. Vingegaard wins, puts nearly three minutes into Pagacha, takes a 2:20 lead and the yellow jersey, which he wouldn't relinquish. Peacock wins on Alpe d'Huez. Uh, with Froome. That was a great stage, actually. Pedersen wins in Saint-Étienne. Matthews wins to Mons, beating Bettiol. Philipson wins his first TDF stage in stage 15, the 40-degree stage to Carcassonne. Hugo Hull wins in Foix, and there's a GC stalemate. Pagacha wins on Perregude, where McNulty and Björg, despite uh, Micah being out, they were able to light up the race. Stage 18 to Altacam. Vingegaard wins Pagacha trying on the descent in Spandels. Laporte wins the Finesse attack on stage 19. Vanart wins the TT to Rockmador. And then Philipson wins the, parent, uh, the final celebration stage with Jonas Vingegaard winning GC by uh, 243. Thomas in third on 722. Vanart points. Vingegaard KOM. Pagacha youth. Ineos teams. That was the rapid fire, Benji. Which stage did you forget happened? Barely any for me. Ooh, did I forget happened? I think uh, I'd have to point perhaps at the Bob Jungle stage is one that is not memorable yes. for me. Yes. Despite the history when it comes to Ugo Ul and the great story behind it, I'm afraid that that's one that I'll probably forget relatively soon personally. But outside of that, is it weird to say that Adam Berg is one of the more forgettable stages in this tour? No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> like, well, I'm not... Because it kind of, ah, uh, yeah, maybe just because in the first week, but I kind of agree, like, there weren't too many attacks um, at that sort of stage. I think the Mejev stage was actually pretty memorable because I kept thinking, like, why were UAE pacing? Um, but let's talk about, I want to start with Pagacha first. Let's talk about not how did Pagacha lose this TDF. He didn't, he tried to win his best. What do you think? I'll give my opinion first on a few things which probably haven't been mentioned enough before and it starts before the Tour de France and that's team construction. I think Tadej Pogacar, Benji probably agrees, I would be surprised if he didn't. Tadej Pogacar is the best rider in the world. Best yeah. GC rider in the world. In all conditions, he's the best rider in the world. And when you have the best GC rider in the world and a very big budget, it, you are expected to win the Tour de France. And uh, a few things happened. Trent and COVID, they can't control that. I think I said the UAE team isn't as strong and so they will, that will cost them in the first week because Yumbo will take advantage. And I was r sort of wrong and sort of right. It did cost them because if you have a Stefan Kuhn level guy, if you have a Matteo Trenton level guy on your team, you're taking more than 13 seconds on stage five. So yep. the team wasn't strong enough to exploit Pagacha's biggest strengths, which is that he is a top five classics rider in the world. That's the problem. Uh, like, I think, what does he take with those? And I, again, training got COVID, they can't control it. But the, you know, Langan's the replacement. They don't have the depth. 
because they don't have the big budget. Like how much time could he have taken on stage five if, if they went in with, in with an attack mindset rather than a let's not lose the tour mindset? I think it's a significant amount. And it comes to the question I put on Twitter the other day. Let's say my question on Twitter was, what would happen in this Grand Tour if Pogacar was the leader of Ineos? And people were saying, oh, no difference, no difference. But I fought back and I agree with stage five. Because if on stage five, Van Barle is on the team of Pogacar, oh, yeah. <laughs> he takes more than a minute, a minute and a half on Vingegaard, who has that puncture and then has that beautiful panic in one picture moment with five riders by the side of the road by Ambo. Still the funniest moment of this entire Tour de France, by the way. That special frame right there. But if he's at Ineos, for example, Pogacar, he has that support on the cobbles. He's got extra strength there and he can gain significant time on that stage. So... I think that's the vital difference here when it comes to uh, the strength of his team. And also next to that, if he had a stronger team, well, on one end you can say throughout the Grand Tour, UAE's team has been struck by a lot of bad luck, illness, uh, riders that got injured riding up a climb like Micah, for example. That's something that like that happens and you can't do Bennett anything COVID. about that. Exactly, Bennett COVID, stuff like that. Now, they get to the final week. Let's say they'll still have five or six riders and... It's an Almeida in there. It's uh, stronger climbers. Then they can counter the satellite riders of a Yumbo team more. And well, because not they were Almeida. Limited, that's true. I, I, I slightly disagree. Or okay. I cut you off so you didn't get to finish your point. But <laughs> the problem is the UAE climbing squad is really good. McNulty, Micah, Bennett got COVID, but shout out to Bennett. Um, Check out his podcast. We always like George Bennett. He actually looked good on uh, Morgan Stage 9. I thought he was coming into some good shape. He did a long pull and he got COVID. I thought mountains, they were covered. Solaire, medium mountains, Solaire was good. Yeah. The problem, and I still think they should have taken Almeida. I still, like, I can't believe they didn't. But the problem was break formation and the, the cobble stage. Basically, the team wasn't strong enough to stop Jumbo Visma taking the piss. Like, Jumbo Visma's like, we're going to get two riders in the break and we're going to get Wout in the break and there's nothing you can do about it. And yep. it's not Mark Hirschi's fault. Trenton got COVID. Hirschi, I think, had his own health issues. He's like, I can't believe the guy got through the tour. So, yeah. like, chapeau to him for getting through the tour. But, like, it's not his fault. But also, he couldn't contribute. Like, he can't control the break of Laporte, Van Hoydonk, Wout, and, and Benoit. So the problem is the flat rulers where they're, they're missing a Betiol, a Kuhn. They miss Trenton. They just didn't have that to stop Yumbo getting riders up the road or making it more difficult. Um, and and you're, you're saying, Benji, they could have had riders go with those Yumbo guys. I, I think denial would have been better. I, I, I think agree. Because de denial would have been better. I completely agree with you. I was perhaps thinking a Formula could go up the road and so forth, but I agree it's... It's not as simple as that. It's much easier to deny those riders to be in the break in the first place than to put a rider in there because you don't know how good your satellite rider is going to be compared to the others, for example. But I fully agree with your points on, on this case. And I think you are spotted well the two issues that we had in the, uh, in the all-encompassing Grand Tour that was the Tour de France, which is the break formation control and also unable to take the opportunities where Pogacar is stronger than their competition, which is on the cobbles, for example. And so I've been consuming a bit of Italian press and Spanish press. So we, we've done week one. 
we both think with a different team and, and approach, Pogaccia can take big time in, yep. in those sort of stages. And, and maybe then he doesn't need to have the team pace and spend a lot of energy on 9 and 10. We get to stage 11, though, for Pogaccia. And I think, sorry if I'm misquoting, but I think Machinor Gianetti, I think, uh, said before the stage of the plan, their plan was not to react on Roglic. Um, but maybe they didn't expect him to go as early. I think I think this tour would have been a lot closer, a lot closer if Pogaccia doesn't react on Roglic. Now, is that hindsight, Benji, like where how can you not react to Roglic when it's Primoz Roglic? How can you not yeah. react to him? I would say, I would argue there were a few indications publicly facing from Morgin and Mergev where he didn't look as good. Um, or wasn't sprinting, maybe he could have been bluffing. But what do you think? Is it can should Pagacha have reacted to the Roglic Vingard like eight, one, two, one, two, one, twos? Well, for the entertainment level of his viewers, it was amazing. Like generally one of the best moments of this Grand Tour is the the one two attacks that followed. Should he have attacked uh, or at least followed the attacks of Roglic on the telegraph already? That's where I'm like, that's early. Um, they've got Laporte in the break in that stage. They've got Van Aert in the break in that stage. I think it's still risky to have Roglic up the road, but I don't think it's as risky as spending all your energy trying to follow at that point in the race. You can use your team to try and keep the gap as close as possible and keep the energy for the latter part of the stage without having to go all out already. But the issue is, if Roglic is up the road, you get a similar effect. You get your team working until you have to work yourself. And when that occurs, then uh, you're bringing would it have been just up, his but, team, or other teams could indeed come in. The third top three riders, for example, could start mingling them. But I think they would have uh, they would have forced UAE to eat their plate out first. I would dare to say. But I want to I want to add something else. Like I think the bigger mistake in that stage was on the actual Galibier climb. So yes. they do those yes. one two attacks and. I still don't really get why Pogacar kept riding to the top of the Galibier because let's say he drops Jonas there. Well, Fanart's still ahead. He's just going to drop to Vingegaard and he's it going to try to and bring Vingegaard back. Tell me. It was, I think he was very concerned about Fanart being ahead. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It makes, Roglic was dropped on Galibier. And I agree, it is difficult to fully criticize in the moment after Telegraph. If you do map it out, mathematically with Roglic three minutes back, assuming some help from other teams, Roglic would have had to do a 50-minute climb solo, descent with Wout, and then a 40-minute climb solo and take back three minutes, and then he's still level with you. I don't think he should have reacted. Um, But as yes, Kreuzweig was pacing, steady pace. Roglic was dropped, and Pogaccia attacked on Glibier. And I think that was to stop Jonas attacking to bridge across to Van Aert. At that point, that was why he did it. Um, but, like, I think, uh, yeah. And then, I agree, it, it didn't... And didn't he even... Did he attack again? Like, Bardet and Thomas came back and then he accelerated again? Or he re- even reacted on Bardet. Bardet attacked and he, like, brought him back on top, yeah. of, top of Libya. And listen, when I was watching it at the time, I was like, holy shit, this guy's unstoppable. Like, he must <laughs> feel so good. And I think he must have felt really good. But it obviously was a mistake. And then on Grenoble... I also would say um, Rafael Micah was really, really strong on Grenoble. Maybe like 
we estimated like six watts per kilo, 5.95 for close to 20 minutes. That's really hard pace. And it almost seemed like, I don't know, he didn't, that was too hard, Benji. He dropped mm-hmm. all the, he dropped Coos immediately. He dropped Kreisvike immediately. Like, yep. why did he pace so hard? They, surely Pikachu would have said, I don't feel it. Or maybe he didn't know. I don't know. Was there a communication issue? Was it just suddenly that Pogaccio was like, okay, I'm running M2 suddenly? Like, there's always that possibility. We don't True, know that factor. you get factor. to 2,000. Yeah, possibly. We, we're not in that team car. We don't know about that factor. But it was seriously a decent pace because he basically brought Pogacar to a moment where he could not even respond to Vingegaard's move that actually happened. He instantly capitulated the second that Vingegaard made his move while Micah tried to up the pace to try and close it. And that's what opened up the gap between Micah and, and Pogacar there. Like, do you think there's a different scenario where, where Pogacar drops earlier off the wheel of Vingegaard and keeps his own tempo with Micah and loses less time? I don't know. I don't know. I, I do wonder. I've been thinking about it a lot. The wow going back for Roglic thing, where it mm-hmm. looks like the way it played out was really preferable for Jumbo Visma because you go back, you collect a UA domestique who's the only guy strong enough, stronger yeah. than Coos and Kreisvike, to set that pace. And it almost cracks Pagacha, the Mica pace. But then I was thinking, okay, what if Wout had just kept hard pacing the group? As you say, Pogacar has less time to feed, much less time to feed and recover and get restore glycogen and hydration. And then Jonas might have been forced to attack earlier. And maybe he takes even more time. It's That's what I've been thinking about. Impossible to know. But I I think it was the Glibier. I, I, think, I, I don't think the Grenon pace... Like, yeah, I think it was the Glibier. I, I don't think Pogacar could have done too much differently once they got to Grenon. But at least Godou got saved at that stage. At least the Wout van Aert thing that, saved Godou. <laughs> how many GC places did that save <laughs> Like three? <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> it's bloody yeah, great though. And, I love it. <laughs> and on Pagur, on, and on stage 17, when everyone stopped, <laughs> he got to come back. Poor Quintana. <laughs> on the days he was good. At, well, yeah, I know. Um, but that was... Okay, so that was stage 11. Pagatch is now 220 behind... At that point, really, I have no idea what UA could do differently. I, th- I think they did the best they could, and Pagacha did the best they could. He put on a show yeah. and he attacked when he could. Like he, when he said, "I could, you know, if I attack on Pagacha and Wout is ahead, it's pointless." Yeah, yeah, it's pointless. Like that's the problem. And with the little resources uh, team they had, they did. You know, it was fine. And he he, he nearly won the tour. Like Taddy Pagacha nearly won the tour on stage eighteen. Let's not forget, he nearly won. Like he was. A split yep. second, two millimeters of tire contact away from winning the Tour de France. And that's why, you, you know, you always should keep trying, even on descents, even when you're not even the best descender, when you've got nothing to lose. Yep. Uh, but it didn't work out. But what do you think, what do you think the changes will be? Like, I still think, I don't think Jonas Vingegaard, let's assume next year, Benji, we don't have Grenoble sort of stages. It's a more normal Tour de France parkour. I think Pikachu will be favorite. And let's assume that. You know, we have a, a couple of rainy days and it's not 40 degrees. That's also people don't realize it. The heat, it was extremely hot. All tour made a big difference, I think. What do you, what changes do you think they will make? What what do you think they need in the team? And what approach do you think Pagacha should have for a normal tour parkour? Well, 
Let's first figure out the team and so forth. So we know that UAE's got youngsters in their in their town. They've got Ayuso, for example. I think that Ayuso was not meant to be riding the Vuelta in 2022. It's not announced yet whether he will. Uh, if he does that, then he might actually show up at the Tour de France next year. But if he doesn't ride any Grand Tour this year, then it's Vuelta time next year is my guess for Ayuso. So I would argue that it is unlikely at the moment that we'll see Ayuso in that Tour de France team next to Pogacar. I think Almeida is the likely one I do see next to the team, uh, next to Pogacar at the Tour de France next year. And is that going to change a lot? I think it's a better climber. I hope they, I hope they, they strengthen themselves when it comes to the flat ruler type riders, like you mentioned, the ones they need to control breakaways and to do cobble stages, for example. Although there likely won't be a cobble stage in, a year after another cobble stage. Nah. It's my guess in the Tour de France. But I rather like a Steven and so forth over the ones I'm, I'm looking at. I'm not even sure he's out of contract at this point, but like just naming a rider. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, just a rider like Kung. that. Kung. Kung. Yeah. He's, there's been whispers about trying to break the contract at FTJ. He has a clause apparently. UAE 2023, according to PCS, they only have 13 riders under contract. Climbing and medium mountain, they're good. Bennett, Almeida, he or she that's not un- unwell or underprepared, Soler, McNulty, they're good. Micah, I assume they will assume they will extend. I think going back to stage eleven, by the way, sorry, Soler, I believe. I don't want, there was a UAE rider who nearly made it across the Laporte group. Again, Soler. if if Soler makes that group, maybe Pagacci wins the Tour de France. Like yep. and I don't know what happened because he was in front of Thomas. I don't know what happened. It didn't show it, but it's fine margins and the best support possible is important. But yeah, Kung, those sort of style riders, really, really important for Pagacha. Finn Fisher Black is a good prospect, but he, I don't think he's he's 20. He had a bad crash this year. I'm not sure he's ready to step up to be that guy uh, next year. I think Bjerg, I'm not sure he has the, the touch for it, Benji, for break mm. formation. I know he's young. He's like 23, so like it's in, it's in unfair to compare him to to Roe. But like I I watched a lot, and he he's chasing breaks he doesn't need to, and that puts him under pressure. Then when the ones he needs to mark, like they just they just sort of snap closing everything everything, yeah. and that really puts him under a lot of pressure. Alberson also did that a little bit too. Uh, they're not they don't quite have like the finesse of a de clerk like. Anyway, but that—that's—is there any other name you want to throw in the hat for them that you think they should they should go after? Honestly, I, I'd have to take a look at the transfer market. So for now, I'll, I'll keep it down. I'll keep it closed. We'll talk about transfers when they happen in our roundup uh, podcast Benji's coming out. Probably but, uh, rider. No, 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 no. Aramburu. Yeah. Well, Jesus. <laughs> that's a sad state if that happens <laughs> imagine you represented Aaron Brew and you come on a podcast where the co-host just roasts you around. you have to just sit there <laughs> you'd be like can you Crying. not do that podcast anymore <laughs> anyway that was UAE and Pagacha's Tour de France he won what he win three stages came second and I mean it wasn't a result he wanted but yeah I think a lot of learnings for next year uh, I don't want to go to Let's, let's change from GC. Wavenart Green, Benji, he walked it like we said because I didn't expect him to come second in back-to-back pure sprint stages. I think Christophe Laporte could be the best last man in cycling right now because Jonas Rickart's still still out. 
Um, the Laporte Wattmanart combo was so good. Do you think, say next year, let's talk next year again. Like you know how he won it easily. Like it was TTs, cobbles, whatever. It was he walked it. A normal one, twenty twenty one style green jersey. I think Philipson can beat him. I think so as well, actually. But it also depends on the support that Philipson has because. We will talk about the sprinters a bit later, but I'm saying it again. If Ricard is here, then Philipson wins three or four stages instead of the two that he has. And yeah. as a consequence, if that occurs in a 2021-style Tour de France with more flat, pure sprints like the ones Cavendish takes last year, then it's more likely that a Philipson gets more points all across a Grand Tour. Philipson would definitely get closer, but I think Wout Fenard... Ah, uh, he's he's favored regardless. I think, like even last yeah. year, if he all out goes for it, I think he he comes very close to. I think he beats Cavendish last year if he completely goes for it and has the freedom that he had this year to go for it. Yeah, you're probably right. And even this Tour de France, actually, a lot of the intermediates, whilst there weren't many sprint stages, a lot of the intermediates weren't after a decent climb, so it yep. didn't really suit the the guys like Wout Van Aert. But yeah, he won. He walked it. Um, and won two or three stages as well. So, but yeah, I agree with Benji. Oh, sorry. I think, uh, I think I want to mention, like, it is also very clear that it helped a lot for Wout that he initially took a lot of points in the first week already. Like you mentioned, those, those two, three second places in a row and then getting the victory on stage four, that's a, a significant boost of points compared to others. He can take time trial points that sprinters can't. He can take hilly stage points on that stage four that a pure sprinter like Jakobsen can't, for example. And that's where significant gaps are made initially. That is a mental barrier for other riders to still go for the green jersey. For example, a pure sprinter after week one might say, okay, this Wout van Aert guy is so far ahead. I'm going to aim for stage wins. I'm going to skip the sprint in the middle of the stage when it comes to the intermediate. Just going to sprint at the end, hoping that I've put all my eggs in the basket of the stage win here. And if you compare that... Did that. Exactly, but he also did yeah, all stuff when it comes to intermediate sprints, so I, I can't actually place that. Like When it comes to Philipson, he didn't go for intermediate sprints in week one already. Then we've got Peterson being one of the riders that I would have expected to be decent for the green jersey. In the end, in hindsight, I'd say that he wasn't consistently good enough to compete for the green jersey, but if he started for the intermediate sprints initially he would have gotten a significant amount of points towards the end Magnus Court Nielsen the break the initial week if he actually like goes for full points there and even sprints for a top 10 top 15 position every sprint I think he can get top 10s in sprints Magnus Court personally I think so meh meh okay I, I think <laughs> Magnus Court could have gotten third or, or something in the green jersey classification this year if he finished the race first of all that's a pretty important factor yeah and uh next to that if he consistently scored points throughout the three weeks which he did in the first week yeah i agree and like he won on mishev like mishev had 30 points which is uh more than that's third in a pure bunch sprint so that's a whole host of points because of his versatility but yeah i think if it's a little bit more balanced next year like it was this was the one where it just couldn't lose i yep. think he nearly or broke sagan's record uh, but even if it is balanced as benji said a cavendish one style last year a style last year i, I think wow should still be the favorite for it if he's got the freedom to go for it um philipson 
he was the best sprinter at the Tour de France. We already mentioned that. I, th- I agree with Benji that he would have one more stage with Ricard here. Let's talk about Jonas Vingegaard. How did Vingegaard win the Tour de France 2022? I think surviving the first week, at the first nine stages, it could have been a lot worse on the cobbled stage. And then, yeah, just going crazy on that Grenoble stage and then just being equal or better, pure climber than Pogaccia in the in the third week, I think his, his TT was really good. Do you think, I don't know, like what does this mean for next year, Benji? Like head-to-head, there's been whispers. We don't know anything about it. There's been whispers about uh, Roglic to Ineos, but that's been denied. But, for example, let's put that to a side, but if you're Yumbo, do you go, okay, Jonas, he was a better climber. He was a better TT rider in the final TT. We can send Roglic to the Giro Vuelta and try and win all the Grand Tours. Or do you think, no, 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 what worked was the dual leader, one, two, one, two. Let's roll that back. I think it would be pure arrogance not to send Roglic next to Jonas to uh, to the to the Tour de France next year. And we look at the Tour de France, we see that Roglic is such, such a big factor in that initial week, both mentally and physically mentally on the competition on Pogacar because he needs to always look for Roglic as well next to following Vingegaard. And then on stage 11, for example, it's significant physical impact that Roglic has on Pogacar on the initial half of the stage, for example. So I think Roglic in this ground tour matters a lot when it comes to Jonas Vingegaard. And the question then is, is it also the opposite? Let's say that Roglic is not at this race, and Vingegaard has full support on the cobble stage. Does he completely come back to the group? That's also a question you could ask. That's a, a potential yeah. factor there. But I would much rather see Roglic and Vingegaard both at a Grand Tour together at the Tour de France, because first of all, it's a much more important Grand Tour than the Giro and the Vuelta, even arguably combined, in my personal opinion. And next to that... There's the factor of like, yeah, you can say you can win every single Grand Tour, but then you're basically trying to do what, kind of what UAE did this year, right? Yeah. They've got Almeida at the Giro, they've got Pogacar at the Tour de France, they've got both Pogacar now not going to the Vuelta, but planned for the Vuelta, and Almeida planned for the Vuelta still. Almeida's getting two Grand Tour leaderships, like the man's know, getting the full crazy. <laughs> it's <Jackpot>. crazy. <laughs> It's like it's like reverse sky. It's like the opposite of like yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's just the way it's worked out. I think the Vuelta that wasn't the plan, but Pagacha had like he crashed in the tour and etc. But I agree that a normal TDF parkour, a twelve kilometer, kind of like this Vuelta parkour Sierra Nevada accepted a twelve kilometer seven percent climb after a medium difficulty stage. Jonas is not dropping Pagacha. Yeah. One on one, like Pagacha going to win the sprint. It's going to be like Orsia Millet style stages. Pagacha winning that sprint, lovely bonus. Thanks very much. Not going to have an issue in crosswinds or sprint stages or whatever. TT, I'd still say Pagacha maybe a bit better. Rainy day has a you know he does his normal level. Everyone else a bit worse. All of a sudden, you're trying to take back a minute on Pagacha on. Uh, to back-to-back 10K, 7% climbs, you're not. Like, you're just not, so without two leaders. So 
if if the parkour next year is a little bit less difficult in the Alps and Pyrenees, you have to have two leaders. Otherwise, it's impossible to beat Pagacha unless I don't know unless Jonas TT is stays much better than him, which is not a guarantee either. So, yeah, I think I think he has to. You, the, especially if UAE Benji have bring a better team as well and you can't have wow up the road in every stage and all the satellite riders as well but what do you expect from Vingegaard sorry I'll let you say what you wanted to say in a second but what do you expect is Vingegaard going to now win Paris next year win Dauphiné and do, should we expect him now to just be cleaning up every world tour one week he does as well I'll be honest I've got no clue because He's got so many injuries, injuries in, in one week race in the last two years. Like last year, the Dauphiné had his Achilles injury. Yeah. Then during the Ardennes, he was not doing too great when it comes to his fitness, is what it seemed to me at least. He was injured at some point this year as well. Did he have COVID or what was that? Early on I in the season? I think he had COVID at an unfortunate time. Okay. And then at Basque Country, he was the better one compared to Roglic, but Roglic had his knee thing. I don't know. They both had stuff all, all throughout the year, like Roglic and Vingegaard. Yeah. And it's like at the Tour de France, they were they seemed to be finally okay until Roglic had his issue. This Tour de France should be a a symptom that Vingegaard can do this in other races as well. But the question is, will he be the type of rider that is able to do this throughout the entire year, like a Roglic and a Pogacar could, or will he be the kind of Grand Tour rider like a Froome or a Nibli and so forth who? specifically needs to peak for Grand Tours because throughout the year, if he does that, then he might not be at his best at a Grand Tour. We don't know that, right? Yeah, like he, Dauphiné, he was good, could have won, but Roglic won. Like he only got beaten by his teammate, which is kind of like a half victory, I guess. Um, <laughs> but you're right, like Torreno on Carpeña, I guess it could be weather as well. Like, is he going to be as good in cool wet conditions in the spring one weeks compared to Pagacha who that is like where he's best yeah I think I think it's more will he be impacted more than Pogacha will because Pogacha is the the rider in GC that is the least impacted in those conditions and when it comes to Vingegaard yeah his Tour de France stage eight last year it's still a year ago he was not the Vingegaard that we have now of course so that difference is not there really but is that an a uh, something that shows that he's also a bit weaker in those conditions like Roglic's for example or like when it comes to Roglic we say that but he's got some decent rainy victories already is it more that he can't handle cold. is it the cold or is it like the sudden things that happen like for example on Formigal he had the jacket issue he had the crash in Pyrenees for example like is it something happening and not responding to that well during the stage well, yeah, because like Coyada, your man, uh, um, Cobadonga combo was rainy, but it it was summer jersey time in the Vuelta okay. last year. Um, and he did incredible performance, like career performance there, following Bernal then dropping him. I think maybe it, it's not even, and this is something I've been talking to writers about as well, um, change in temperatures rapid change in temperatures and i think this caught a lot of riders off guard at tour de suisse and we'll see less of it at the vuelta a lot of guys before tour de suisse doing altitude doing training in temperate weather in 20 degrees 15 degrees starting their ride in the morning you start the ride in the morning in andorra up at the altitude back in may or june it's it's like single digits up there in the morning when you when you roll down the hill and they go to Swiss, bang, 
it's yep. 35 degrees and the body just shocked. Um, I think that's also something that maybe some riders deal with better than others. And it's something that is probably, you know, not well understood. And in horse racing, you have the concept of, it's very well known, of wet trackers, horses that do much better in wet conditions yeah. or do the same in wet conditions. It's like something, the minute the rain weather forecast changes, the odds will change significantly. Like it's, it's modeled. Whereas in cycling, for sure it has a huge impact, but is it well yep. understood? I'm not sure. We obviously very strongly believe that Pagacha is almost unimpacted by shit conditions unbeatable (laughs) in in shit conditions he's unbeatable. in shit conditions yeah it's it's yeah the handling everything unbeatable and then same with almost fundable anyway i don't know what that topic was um but (laughs) this is the problem we write down the genuine topics and vingard vingard yeah um (laughs) i agree with you it looks more like a from neebly style benji so Maybe don't expect him to just be cleaning up Paranese. Maybe he will with good prep. I don't know. Um, anyway, the last question on the men's tour of France that we had was the KOM classification. We had the anti pagacha system. It turned into Jonas Vingegaard winning. I think the system is fine. I think the points allocation of KOM was fine. There was no double points. There was stages that Mejev, Morgin, I think it, that was all fine except for the parkour. It was maybe the hardest I've ever seen for a skinny climber to get in a breakaway in this year's Tour de France. There were no early climbs in a lot of the big mountain stages, and for guys like Mike Woods or Pino, they just can't do it. They're just, like Mike Woods in particular, really, really struggled from what I could see to get in the break and the flat, fast starts. You seen that really wide handlebars. He didn't have a tug buddy on certain of them. And it makes it really hard for them to get in the break. Whereas Geshka is actually really good. And that's where I think he was doing well. And so I think that was the problem, Benji. And they need to put just a little 3K, 8% of Lasset de Montvernier early just to so those guys can get in the break. Yeah, I think this year will be a difficult year to judge the KOM jersey as a consequence of that. Like last year, we had the double points on the final climb that impacted it so hard that Pogaccia ended up winning the KOM jersey versus the others like about pools and so forth. This year, we didn't have those double points on the final climb, but the impact of the breakaway formation, like you are mentioning, caused it to be so difficult to be in the breakaway that riders were so inconsistent at getting in the breakaway in the first place on the stage that mattered for the KOM points. And therefore, they weren't getting the high points that they needed to combat the limited amount of points that Vingar Pogacar could get on the final climbs of stage. Now, I also think next to that, the added bonus of the breakaway formation is that it became so incredibly hard for a breakaway to form that it basically became possible for GC riders to take home the mountain stages that were breakaway stages in the first place. So that added another... Yeah. To, to to take maximum points on not the last climb on the yeah. Galibier on that's the big problem too. I think all those. I think the entire breakaway formation is the reason that the KOM jersey was this year won by Vingegaard and not by a KOM breakaway artist, for example. And I think therefore it's very difficult to judge the KOM classification solely on this year. I think we need to test the same system as we had this year again on a different parkour next year before we can actually judge it. Because I think on the majority of races. The majority of Tour de France is with this system. You're going to have a breakaway rider taking the KOM jersey at the end of the year. 
at the end of the Tour de France is my guess. But there's some people they that were... Have. Yeah? Well, they okay. barely did. Even yeah. even with no one except Geshka really going for it properly, Vingegaard barely won. So, like, the system, I think, was fine. I think so as well. I think the system's fine. I think they need to keep it for next year, test it out another year. But there's some people that are offering up ideas like, should there be a KOM jersey based on the KOM times, the times of which a rider does on a climb? But my opposing thought to that is, what if I'm a guy that is like in the peloton? I'm like, oh, I want the points on that climb. Let me wait for the Gropetto for a bit before the climb starts and then start racing up the climb from the Gropetto. Like, <laughs> what are we doing here? Like, it would I don't result like in it. so much shithousery. <laughs> it would be so, it would, it would. It sounds like, oh, it makes sense. But in, rea- in reality, I think it would be so bad. <laughs> like, How will you visualize it, it? Like, will you follow the people that are actually going faster throughout the climb? That you wouldn't be able to have a moto on them for like most yeah. of the time. It, it doesn't, it wouldn't work. Um, it's fine. It's just, it's just the way it worked out. And whereas double points, yeah, that had to go. Uh, that just had to go. But uh, we'll, we'll try and wrap up the men's TDF now. We'll do a little keep star. Alisa? One more question. Was One this more. the best Tour de France you ever watched? I'm 12, so I haven't watched many. But yeah, it was. It was. It was. And that was because GC was just every day. I swear there was something on GC, even on the stages like Morgin and Majev. Like I had them booked in, swift ride, late lunch, maybe even go out to lunch. With my wife, nah. It was like UAE pacing, big fight for the break. It was like, I can't wait for the Vuelta where I see. I just can't wait for Burgos, uh, Keeper, Kern Farmer <laughs> to get in the break. Two guys on flat stage. I'm like, yes, fuck yes, yes. <laughs> come back in three hours. We never had that. Even while going solo on stage, you had to still watch. So, yeah, it was incredible. Like, I remember so many of the stages were memorable. Grenoble was a crazy stage. Outdoors. That was the only kind of stalemate one. But then even the Pyrenees, like Pagatcha just went all in for the win and just made it super entertaining. Uh, UAE on Perigud, even even the Foix stage, even the uh, Murder Pagur stage 16, Benji, nothing happened in the end. But the tension before there, it could have exploded. One bit of weakness from Vingegaard or, or Pagatcha, they got satellite riders and suddenly big time. Like the tension was really, really good. Whereas... It's kind of like the opposite to the Giro where no big gaps are happening, no big gaps are happening, not too much, three guys together, 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 final climb, Healy goes, takes time, to, uh, Giro's over. Like, it, it, you know, there wasn't actually the tension. Like, remember during that final Giro stage, it was like, this is shit, and it was boring. And then it just was because the test done. This tour was kind of... The opposite with wall-to-wall action. So my answer is yes. Sorry, that was a very long way of saying yes. Good. I like the answer. I think when it comes to me, I was kind of like, when the Tour de France started, I was like, okay, these first three Danish stages, the public's amazing. We had a first time trial with the weather kind of deciding the victor a bit, which I'm never a fan of when it comes to time trials. So I was kind of a bit like meh about it, even though it's Lampard, awesome guy, really happy that he won. His interview was amazing, really honest and so forth so i love that but the first eight stage of the last year's grand tour are a perfect grand tour in itself for me 
But then it became boring because it was so obvious that Pogaccio was winning after the first eight stages last year. But the first three stages of last year's Grand Tour were more memorable to me than the first three of this year's Grand Tour. Van der Poel with Mur de Bretagne, the yellow oh, jersey yeah. for Pulidor, Alaphilippe on the first stage in World Championships jersey. Like, that's awesome to me. Those first three stages. These three first stages in Denmark were a bit meh, in my personal opinion. They were. But then it started tuning up. It started tuning up. We had three Wout van Aert second place in those first three stages. And having him do that crazy stuff on that Calais finish, like that was pretty amazing to watch. Let's be honest about it. That kind of kicked off the Tour de France for me. And that's when it started coming stage by stage by stage by stage, just continuously action, 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 action. And I think in the end of this the most crazy Tour de France I've watched because even on the flat stages, Pogacar was attacking into the breakaway sometimes. And that's something you wouldn't see in the Froome days. Bardet was not doing that against Froome in 2017, as my guess, 2016, whatever. The year they had Peragut as well, where Bardet won. Like, we we seen so much action throughout this Grand Tour on stage that we didn't expect it either. I'd say this is probably the best Grand Tour I've ever watched, although there's probably some recency bias in there. I'm a, a person that is often biased to recent events. If a, a rider wins the most recent race, I will probably rate them higher than someone who won that exact race a year ago. Yeah, but- Remco's winning the Vuelta because he won <laughs> San Sebastian. I told you this already. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's my point. <laughs> no, nah, like, is that... It's the best one we've ever done since starting the podcast. Yeah. Well... Is it? No, because tw- no, 2020 was not the best overall race. It maybe had the most crazy finish, Yeah, and it, but, but I don't think best overall race. I did mention once on the podcast, the finish of a Grand Tour is very vital to how I rate them in my rankings when it comes to the years. 2016 Giro was dog shit for me because I'm an Ibley fan. The dude's losing 17 decades on a time trial in a mountain time trial against Stevie Squareway. So that's pretty damn sad. And in the end, in the last week, it all turns around. Yes, I'm a hardcore Nibali fan, so I'm very happy that the events unfolded like they did. It's very unfortunate for Steven, of course, for Steven Kruiswijk on that ice wall. Esteban, well, yeah, I never really Bikey saw him as... should have won. Nah, nah. Vincenzo Nibali, goat. Absolute goat. But, but I don't, were you, did you not... Could you have not watched the TT this year? I still had to watch it, you know, because of because of 2020. I can't – I know mathematically I was like, Pogaccio cannot do anything. And after after game, he couldn't. But I still was like, I still got to watch this TT. Ah, I don't know I, what's going to happen. I didn't believe Pogaccio was going to win after Paragud. Paragud was like – because like even in the worst possible scenario where Vingegaard was so isolated that UAE was at their strongest – it was Vingegaard able to follow Pogaccio and even contest for the stage when in Peragut, for example. And when you're that strong that you can take that competition on at your weakest team-wise, then I was not scared of what's about to come in the coming uh, few days, except for a crash or puncture. But hey, what? there's nothing we can do about that. There, That happens. So I, I well, never tried can. to think you about that. You not follow, not follow Pogaccio doing Threat of Death down Spandels <laughs> and you cannot try and break the descent KOM into Rocamador and the TT. So I disagree. There are a few <laughs> things. So that's why I had to watch because Jonas was like, I want to win by five minutes, it looked like to me. Um, I made it entertaining. But, yeah, it was the best one I think we've definitely covered on the podcast, one of the best I've ever watched. And just very aggressive racing. I think that was Yumbo team being aggressive. And then oh, gotcha. you're coming up against a one-man, a one-man wrecking ball. 
that's unfair, actually. So um, McNulty and Bjerg made stage 17, um, yeah. but otherwise he was, you know, always attacking. So, yeah, crazy race. How would you – Ineos, Benji, just quickly. <laughs> Ineos, Ineos might have been in the background this Tour de France. They certainly were not the strongest team. Like I remember after the uh, after Roglic abandoned – People said Ineos are now the strongest team. And I was like, on paper, of course, but look at Van Baal. Look at Castroviejo. Look at Ghana. These guys are getting dropped on first climb of the day. They're not able to get in the break easily. I, I don't know what happened, whether they're overraced, whether they're just sick, whether you know, I don't know. The that being said, the team wasn't that exciting. They won teams. Thomas podiumed. Pidcock won on Alp de Wes. That is a successful tour. I think if you say to them before the race, you're going to have all those things, a stage win, uh, an iconic one with your big young star you gave a big contract to, British, and Thomas Podium and teams, that's a successful tour. But it almost didn't feel like that because they couldn't impact the race yeah. in any way. It was just Thomas following. But that was the best strategy for him. I agree with that. It's the best strategy for Thomas, and that's why it worked out in the end getting that podium. He was also simply the third best climber in this race, in my opinion, throughout this entire uh, race. Now, the yep. time trials did help him compared to other riders. That's also an extra, but climbing-wise, he was there as well. So, in general, I think Ineos did well using that strategy. It's less entertaining that they didn't go in breakaway with Pitcock sometimes to put pressure on other teams, but perhaps it's because Thomas wants a, a more relaxed race where UAE and Yumbo are not facing down the breakaway the entire day, for example. Like, they might listen to him and, like, say... Uh, what what do you what race do you want, for example? But I'd argue one of the biggest disappointing riders of this Grand Tour is Filippo Ganna. He didn't do it in the time trials. Nope. He was basically a bottle carrier for Ineos throughout the races. He was on quite a fair with the GC group, which I still can't wrap my head around. But oh, it's quite like, a fair was soft pace oh, with okay. before oh, okay. Dunk, yeah. But like. I feel like he's been disappointing this Grand Tour. I hope he beats the one-hour record. I think he should do that easily still. But I feel like it's a bit of a disappointment uh, for Ineos that Ghana was not at the level that he was probably hoping to be. And Martinez, I think, came into the race either unwell or with adjusted prep. He, he got slowly better throughout the race. He did his best uh, in the back end. But yeah, it was it was crazy because Thomas did this pretty much on his own in the mountains, like no team support. I know Yates paced him a little bit on Pagur, but Thomas beat David Guru by six minutes in fourth. Like you take away the top two, Thomas spanked everyone else with barely any team <laughs> support in the mountains. So like yeah. a crazy performance from him. What about Adam Yates though? Like do Ineos... I don't really see why Ineos need an Adam Yates. Like, why would you yep. be giving Adam Yates one week World Tour race leadership next year you instead of a instead of a Carlos Rodriguez, a Plap, a Hater, the young guys who maybe will Pidcock even become that next GT guy? Agreed. I would not resign Adam Yates if I was Ineos. It's as simple as that. He's not worth it when it comes to Grand Tours. He did get a um, fourth spot. No, he did. Did he get fourth spot? Yes, right? Yes, uh, last fourth year in the Vuelta? Fourth last year. Yeah, he not a podium. He didn't keep pacing when Haig was behind. Exactly. He can podium a Grand Tour if he's tactically perfect. But um, I think 
I wouldn't resign him. You've got plenty of youngsters that might be able to do so in the future. So I'd say, nope, I'd focus that money on trying to keep Carlos Rodriguez. I uh, heard a rumor that he might be staying. So let's hope that's the case. And uh, if that's the case, then uh, we might see that Spanish jersey uh, on the podium of the Vuelta this year. Yeah, I'm going to keep on saying it. It's happening. Last year, I <laughs> tweeted it in July that he would podium the Vuelta of 2023. Sivakov is I'm stronger taking than that him. goal. Fuck that. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Carlos Sivakov Rodriguez. Do it. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Carlos Rodriguez right. is going to podium the 2022 Vuelta. We need to have a Christian Rodriguez versus Carlos Rodriguez head-to-head. Um <laughs> At the Vuelta, actually, wasn't there issues with Christian yeah. at Total? Yeah, um, they they snubbed him because of at the tour. Yeah, he was going to uh, Arkea, I think, and it. apparently it's rumored because of his transfer that he wasn't signed up to the Tour de France. So similar to Quinton yeah. Hermans, that's a shame, and I don't like it. I hate that stuff. Yeah. Um. Anyway, Ineos, I would say it was good for what they had before the tour, but overall. Lot, big picture, is this what Jim Ratcliffe is paying the most, the biggest budget in the sport for, or the equal with UAE or around there? Is this what he's paying it for, or is it to win the tour? I think it's to win the tour. And at no point, at no point were they really capable of winning the tour or even but close. I'm going to throw in another question while we're doing a 10-hour podcast anyway. When it comes to the riders at Ineos right now, we saw... Tom Pitcock win on Alpe d'Huez. We saw him get a That's top the most 10 important thing of this whole tour. Did he get a top 10 in GC in the end? Uh, he, no, nah, no, nah, he hard cracked third week. He oh, lost okay. like an hour. I was just about to ask you if you ever see him bodyming a Grand Tour, but. Oh, no, of course. Okay. Tell me. No, no. It, it, for the young guys, like, it, it doesn't matter that they couldn't do the full three weeks. It doesn't matter. What matters is. Could they stay in top 10 close for like the first 10 days? Avonapol did in the Giro when he shouldn't have gone. Peacock did it in this Tour de France, a hard tour too. Can, do they have the pure climbing after a hard stage in hot conditions to compete? Against Vingegaard and Pogaccia, don't know about Peacock. But Alpe was a very, very good performance. I think he did. 5.8 on Alpe d'Huez after being in the break, after bridging solo. He also has probably top five technical skills. Like, he's a, a god. Like, the descending, that is, yeah. when your descending is that good, it's it's not just not a negative, it's a huge advantage. And so I think for them, the most important long-term is that Pidcock did so well in the first 10 or so days, won the stage, or 13 days even, and hopefully, if I was them, I'd be hoping he's caught the bug. I'd be hoping he's caught the Tour de France bug and he's like, okay, I'm going to... Because you need to sacrifice a lot to prepare for GC yeah. in the Tour. You, you, and that's what they're probably hoping for or maybe he wants to do other things. I don't know. But if he prepares fully for Grand Tours for the Tour, he can podium the Tour de France in the next three, four years. And for that, we need to f- configure also in the... Olympics, for example, I think 2024 is Paris, Paris, so likely he won't be doing the tour in 2024, considering the Olympics are near that period, most likely, so I'd cancel that out. 2023 might be early to podium a Grand Tour, 2025 is the year, perhaps, that he can try that quest. I think uh, I agree with the factor that he needs to be decisive about what he will focus on, because it's physiologically different to be a Classics rider than a climber, although Pogacar has shown to be able to do both, for example. Pitcock probably as well can do both quite well. So 
I don't know. Would you rather see him win RVVR podium a Grand Tour? Uh, I'm very stage race focused. I'd love to see him fully try and test his limits in Grand Tours. I think I'm not so concerned about the pure climbing. I think if you're his size and you can put guys under pressure on the flat, then you the Waspikilo will sort themselves out. Avenapol's proved this and Peacock, I think, will prove that. It's more can he do the volume, the Richie Port hours to be able to do the three weeks, recover, etc. Because he, he couldn't recover at the back end of this tour, but I don't think he's he's not tested it yet. So I, I really want to see that from Pidcock. And I'm I was excited. Alpdewer's crazy like he, yeah, he ruined Menkes, man. Menkes didn't expect him to be able to do that. Menkes was trying to bait him. Pico was like, actually, I'm just going to keep riding away from you. So, yeah, Ineos positives, but also maybe Ratcliffe's like, where are we winning the tour? <laughs> Who's winning the tour in the next three <laughs> years? Um, maybe there's that as well. I don't know. Um, Bernal crashing, they couldn't control. Anyway, that was the men's tour to France. Um Long recap, now time for our first ever mega recap of the Tour de France fam, Avec Swift, which, as you know, was supported by our show partners, Swift, who are supporting the Tour de France fam for another three years. So if you're watching this show, you're helping grow the sport and supporting this race. So thanks for listening. Thanks for anyone that watched the race live. If you'd like to support Zwift as well and give easy, fun, indoor riding a go, head to Zwift.com for your free seven day trial but we'll do the rapid fire stage recaps uh stage one the champs-elysees stage fevers wins as expected uh the sprint takes the first yellow jersey voss there was that longer borghini balsamo counter she goes with it with persico voss dusts everyone a little uphill finish ludwig won that uh sprint uphill sort of sprint to Eponay in on stage three. Voss still in the leader's jersey. Then Marlon Royster on the white gravel stage. Esty Works go for the stage win. She wins the stage. Voss still in yellow. Then Lorena Vibers wins the Sondier de Vosges sprint, which had a few little hills, but she got over them. Voss still in yellow, but green looking good for Voss because Voss is sort of second and third always on these stages. And then Voss... One wins the Rosheim stage, her second stage win, still in the yellow jersey. That sprint where I think Vibers was, she crashed, was dropped. And then uh, the huge mountain stages. Van Vleuten goes on Petit Ballon, puts huge time into everybody, wins the stage by three minutes ahead of Vollering, wraps up GC, takes the yellow jersey, and she wins with that yellow jersey on the Super Planche de Belfi yesterday, which was a kind of a perfect Tour de France. To be honest, Benji, this was quite – this played out actually exactly how I expected. Like there wasn't really much divergence. Uh, Van Vleuten winning both mountain stages, winning GC. Mavos winning two stages, being the best versatile sprinter. Vivas being the best sprinter. But my question is, could SD Works, who decided yesterday to pace after the Van Vleuten multi-mechanicals, could they have actually done something differently in this race? I think they could. I think there's been certain stages in this Grand Tour, in this Tour de France fam, where we did not have Annemiek van Vleuten at her best. We had, we've, we saw gastro issues during, I think it was stage three, four, that region roughly. Yeah. We noticed that she wasn't at her best, that she was dropping on smaller hills and so forth, that she hadn't eaten perfectly in the lead up to those stages as a consequence of those gastro issues. And that led to 
some yeah some dropping some coming back stuff like that and situations where sd works didn't take advantage of those moments they had moments in the race i don't know the specifics of the situation in that stage anymore but the group in which sd works were they did not work to keep Annemiek van Vleuten behind and i think when it comes to gastro issues you you can take advantage of that in my personal opinion like it's it's part of racing if well, if you're going to pace not... after a mechanical, then yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the same. So I don't, I don't understand. Is it because people criticize them for not taking advantage of the gastro that they took advantage of the mechanical? <laughs> no, no. I think I don't really understand. Um, to be honest, I think it's very difficult. It's difficult with six rider teams too because you don't have those two extra riders. The SD works basically a team of stars. Kopecky. Like, Mulman wants her own result. Royce is, like, a champion in her own right. Like, it's a team of stars, whereas, like, Trek a little bit more caught on her go is a domestique. Yeah. Uh, Ellen Van Dyke is happy in road stages to be a domestique, and she's overqualified for that. Uh, Majerus is the exception to that for SD Works, but they don't have three Majerus. They have one. Exactly, and... There's that aspect to it because that's an important aspect not only in the race but in the lead up to the race that it seemed throughout this Tour de France fun that D-Works had not decided who their all-out leader was going to be and that they were more on a stage-to-stage basis and see what happens in the end kind of deal. And we noticed that with the Reuser thing where once again they had the opportunity to put pressure on Van Vleuten but they decided to go for the stage win instead. And whether that was a decision or a mistake with communication and so forth, we... We've heard different stories from different people. I'd argue it was probably a mistake for choosing the stage win over the other, over GC at that moment in the race. And if we look at that, then Reuser is the rider that is being selected from that situation to take advantage and take the stage win. We saw multiple stages in which Volering was doing work for Kopecky, was at the front on a gravel section very early on. Like, I think Volering also just spend more energy than she needed to in the lead up to the mountain stages whether it had any effect eventually i don't know but all these things combined meant that i think volering could have been closer to van vleuten on the final gc standings than she was currently and but could they is... have taken 348 no that's the thing so if if you don't and, have yeah. If you if you know you're going to lose three mins and you don't think you can take three mins and you're only going to take a minute but you sacrifice the stage win on stage four, you go home with still second but now no stage win. Agreed. Agreed. That's indeed. Is that a mistake? I I don't know if that's a mistake then. Like we can talk about it all we want. I don't think stage four is the problem. I think stages two and three are the problem. Okay. When... When Van Vleuten was dropped on that punchy climb and she was coming back solo and Volering soft paced and then Mulman went for the stage. That's the one where I'm like, both of you need to get yeah. on the front and absolutely drill it rather than half going for GC, half protecting Volering's GC, half going for Mulman's stage win. That was the one where I'm like, you really, let's try to take 90 seconds here. Because um, they still took 20 without even doing it. But uh, by the time we got to the white gravel roads, I don't know. Um, to be honest, when a rider can take four minutes on you in two stages in the mountains, there there is little you can do. Um, but yeah, I think I do think Benji with a six rider team, if I'm SD Works next year, I will try and have clearer priorities and roles 
and I think they maybe had one too many. I think the Kapeki plus Volring plus Mormon GC plus Royce, I think that was one of them has to give. Yeah. And I think they also had some bad luck this Tour de France from. They had Royster having her concussion, being out before the mountain stages started. Kopecky was not in the form she was in the initial part of the year. Like, there's some aspects there that definitely impacted the strength of their team. And if they were stronger as a team, they might have been able to pay that team factor more in those first few stages, which they ended up not really doing. So, I don't know, it's a combination of weaker tactical decision-making and a worse team than I anticipated before the race started? Yeah, Kopecky was... I thought Kopecky, she she was not in her spring shape. Like, yeah. norm, she's not in a Vivas group immediately on any climb in her spring shape. She won Strada Bianca. She won Tour of Flanders, right? Like, she, I don't think she was in her spring shape. Um, and yeah, speaking of sprinters... Lorena Vibers, the best sprinter in the world. Like, no one can touch her in a, in a pure bunch flat sprint. I think Sean Zalise, it is what it is. Like, that was always going to be a sprint. But then stage five is the one where um, I was really surprised that more teams didn't try and put her under pressure. Like, they, they must know. They know at this point, if you go to the finish, like, you have a 9% chance of losing unless she crashes. Like, were you surprised not to see sort of ruler attacks on that one and a half K, 4% climb and other teams seemingly happy to contribute to controlling the race? It was somewhat surprising to me. Yes, the breakaway that was initially in that stage was riders that were perhaps the teams that we expected to put pressure on. We was in the first place. I think Henderson was in the break for Yumbo where Voss was in the peloton. So there are situations in that race where it kind of blocks the ability of going in that race. I think Cordona Go was also in the breakaway, but I'm not 100% certain anymore on that stage. So those are kind of the teams we'd expect to put pressure on that stage, on Avibis. But it's clear that she's the fastest sprinter on flat sprints, and the key to beating her is simply dropping her before the sprint is there. And sometimes the parkour is good enough to to allow you to do that. Sometimes the parkour is not, but if you don't try, you're never going to make it happen. And that's how he was won that second stage, as simple as that. And I think that second stage was perhaps avoidable when it comes to the competition in terms of having her win. But the first one was simply unavoidable. If she's in a good position, then she's going to likely win. But your lead out can actually be a factor because on that Champs-Élysées stage, I'd argue that if Henderson closes the door legally, just like we saw in last year's men's tour de france with turnison to cavendish then i think Voss might have more of an opportunity to win that champs Elysees stage although Wibbers might still find a way to come around once Voss launches it would it would have been a lot closer a lot lot closer if if henderson had gone diagonally across to yeah. um to the barrier and but she left it open it it does sort of opened up for cool i guess Vibers lost Charlotte Cool as well during the race. Did that make a difference? Like, she was still yeah. able to win without her. I think she wasn't there on stage five. But yeah, it's clear that you just can't go to the finish with her and you must use any sort of, like, it's tough because if they got five for Georgie and Lippert, they can control. Like, they got a strong team to control as well. That's the problem. DSM have put a really strong team around her. And it's now pretty funny because now we're talking about both SD Works and we spoke about both Vibers and. That's becoming a factor next year if we have to hear all the transfer rumors with Wibbers going to SD Works. Like, it's going to become That's even ridiculous. more troublesome for <laughs> SD Works 
what is in terms point? of i don't know like when it comes to it it's it's a great transfer like for sd works having the best printer in the peloton is a great transfer it might make their leadership stuff a bit more troublesome she might not have a proper lead out in races although kopecky might actually become that role in the Tour de France fam next year if this occurs. But who knows? What I see as a beauty from that transfer is that we might finally see Charlotte Cole get the opportunity she deserves at a World Tour level at DSM, which I'm looking True. forward to. True. Charlotte Cole, probably top five, top six sprinter in the world. Could be yeah. better than that. And I guess I would say there's no question that like Kopecky's pure sprint is not even Voss level this yeah. year, I don't think. So... She's been more of a classics rider, so I think she should be the lead out for Vivas. But that would be if that transfer goes through, then the rich get richer. <laughs> SD works. I don't know. That Tour de France team. <laughs> that Tour de France team is going to be very, very busy uh, next year with six riders. Uh, but otherwise, would you? How would you rate this Tour de France fan, Benji? Like, I think they backloaded the parkour. I think yesterday's mountain stage was actually quite good. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, how would you rate it? The white road gravel stage, I think, was pretty good, although maybe teams didn't weren't aggressive enough. Mate, yeah, how would you, you called rate? it the bridge stage of the bridge of the men's Tour de France. You you compared that to the gravel stage. It wasn't stage. as bad as the bridge stage. It, it wasn't, wasn't as bad, bad. at all. <laughs> but that was SD Works and Trek's fault. I thought yeah. I thought it was going to be carnage. I was it was there. <laughs> Whereas the bridge was a block headwind, like anyone, nothing anyone could do. Um, yeah, I, I would rate it a, a pretty resounding success. And even commercially, which it seems to be you. Did you see the France TV? You speak French, Benji. Um, <laughs> the France TV numbers look pretty good. The views on the podcast been really good. Views on the highlight videos yeah. on the National Review channel been good. I think when it comes to our numbers, we can compare to previous races, and we see that Tour de France Femme is doing great compared to other women's races we've covered. But yep. when it comes to the France TV numbers, I don't know what we're comparing to. So I just True. see numbers, and I'm like, ooh, numbers, they, they sound pretty high. Millions. But, <laughs> millions. <laughs> but I've got no clue what like the, the baseline is, what we're comparing to. So I'm just guessing that it was good numbers. I know that they did the Vive Velo show, which is like the national... Tour de France TV show also for the Tour de France Femme and I think it did pretty well towards the Tour de France Femme as well so hopefully we see those numbers increase over the coming years we see more interest in this race because I'd argue it was a very successful race we saw pretty much loads of people by the side of the road in the races as well which is curious to see I think the Tour de France brand adds a lot to a race and I think whether that's men riding their bike or women riding their bike it's just as entertaining if you spend the time enjoying and learning about it because the biggest factor of getting into women's cycling in my eyes is still the the learning curve the learning curve of getting to know the riders because it's the same as every other sport i have difficulties getting into f1 because i need to get to know every single May, person you just watch in a netflix show you don't need to get into it just watch drive to survive and you know everything and then watch the hard videos on youtube like i do yeah yeah i'm okay. an f1 fan. okay <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are going to get roasted for that <laughs> I'll, I'll leave them to you but uh like there's that aspect to it the learning curve i think once once you can figure that out then it's awesome so i hope the twitter france farm can be that that kind of gateway into the sport of women's cycling for mainstream men's cycling fans to do try and jump over a bit there's been a few come discussions on social media about oh my god women's cycling so many crashes and so forth. i think it's a bit of a I think that's a non-discussion because I think in general we've seen way too many men's cycling crashes as well. I think there's definitely been more riders on the ground in the first three stages of the Tour de France last year than in 
most of it is Tour de France form. I think that's an entire discussion that is useless. Yeah, that's, and, just, that's just haters. I would, yeah. I Fuck just, it. Yeah, ignore it. Like, everyone that watches races, no crashes happen wherever. I think... I do wonder about the positioning of it on the calendar. Yeah. And I do wonder whether if you start it straight after Tour de Suisse, this race is probably bigger than Tour de Suisse easily. If you start it before the men's tour. Yeah, but. Uh, is the media less fatigued? Are viewers less fatigued? I'm just, I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't a success. I'm just trying to say how to maximize and optimize interest. If you have that week before the men's tour, will it? You have all the eyeballs. Like when Paru Bay fam, Avec Swift now, on the Saturdays before the men's Paru Bay, it gets a lot of interest. The counter argument is it could get drowned out by previews, by discussions about the men's tour. True, but there's also the factor of the national championships at the end of June, right? Isn't that oh, after the tour? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're pretty is. important. <laughs> nah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, true. Is it yep. like, is it an issue to have DNCs of the women's races earlier during Tour de Suisse, the men's Tour de Suisse? Uh, nah, it's probably organizational and yeah, more difficult. difficult. I, I've got yeah, no clue how to fix the issue, but like, also, G, the Giro Don is also fucked in the calendar, right? Oh, First true. Year, well, that, that has to move. Well, will they move that? I mean, it was during the first two weeks of the men's tour de France. Like that's just a battle you're never going to win for <laughs> eyeballs. It's just impossible. No, no race does. Like no races. It's the clearest calendar. Um, I think there have been words of that moving. And Annemiek van Vleuten. Anyway, that's just a discussion. We don't really have access to all the audience numbers. Impossible to really definitively say. Just putting it out there. Annemiek van Vleuten, though, she did the double. Won the Giro Donna. Won the Tour de France. Van Vleuten Swift. Is it? A foregone conclusion that she just cleans it up next year, Benji. Like I don't think it is. I think it's possible that riders can come through, improve really fast. Like Cavalli's trajectory, Volering's trajectory. Like it's possible. Cavalli keeps in Persico. Yeah, if if she gets a decent contract, I'm not saying she's not on one already, but if she's on big contract, she can go to altitude and do everything like that. Who's to say that she couldn't be up there next year? I agree with that. She's had great support when it comes to Volcar in, in just a lot of races that she's ridden. She's shown over the last two years that she's godlike talented, third at Cyclocross World Champs, leading into this Tour de France Femme as well, where she had the Giro Don two weeks ago, where she got seventh, also a great race for her. And now we come to this Tour de France Femme, where she's so consistent throughout this race. And honestly, I, I like her as a rider. I like seeing, uh, seeing her ride because it's, it's one of those like, the riders that came out in the last two years and has popped her head out and is like, okay, now I'm here. Now I'm going to show you what I've got. Kind of like what we expect from a Blanca Vaj at some point on World Tour level where she true. hasn't built that true yet, but she's also significantly younger. So she's allowed to wait a few more years to make that godlike step in World Tour, for example. But I think those kind of riders prove that there can be quick switches when it comes to World Tour and... I think it will depend on the transfers of teams and so forth, whether Annemiek van Vleuten is the all-out favorite for next year is Tour de France Femme again, whether her form next year will be similar to this year. At some point, Annemiek van Vleuten will eventually run out, whether that's going to be next year or within like five years, for example, I don't know. I, Tom Brady. She announced she, her she retirement, right? 
I think maybe. No? I don't remember Before anymore. Paris? But like riders at Movistar, they stay on their bike for 17 yeah. years after <laughs> announcing it anyway. So <laughs> I think Van Vlutten said that she has an advantage because she's older than some of the other competitors. And so she has the ability to do high training volume. I agree to a certain extent. I would say if you take a Blanca Vash or these Cavalli level talents, Persico level talents, and you very quickly transition them into a Van Vleuten programming with altitude at least twice a year, with all the bells and whistles um, of training camps, nutrition, everything, you would be very you'd be surprised how quickly riders their level can just ascend. They don't need you know it, it, rather than the ten years of, of fitness and endurance. It's... Now, of course, they can't double their training kilometers in a year. Uh, usually, most riders can't do that. But I think if you add that into a lot more riders, and it is happening, I, I see it here all the time. Many more like many women world tour riders um, training here, doing like mountain prep. I think you'd be surprised how quickly riders will improve fast. Yeah, and I think there's a significant difference with how the men's and women's uh, peloton still preps these races. Like, if I had to guess, I'd say five to ten percent of the women's peloton goes to altitude, while probably a hundred percent does it for the men's Tour de France, for example. So that's a big difference, but it's a money question as well. But is there a danger for a rider's training? And it is like I'm not even sure you know this answer, but is there a danger in ruining their potential by forcing it a bit too much too swiftly like we're talking about sending someone to altitude twice a year upping their oh, training volume fine. can it fuck them up well yeah training vol. if you double training volume <laughs> not in a smart way then yeah that's that could be a big problem doing okay. altitude as long as you adjust everything and account for it i don't really see that why that maybe some riders don't react well to it but that's not going to be a bigger problem but yeah if you say okay van vleuten's doing thirty thousand k's a year if you want to beat van vleuten you need to do thirty thousand i know you've only been doing seventeen thousand k's to date and you're 22 but you're gonna do thirty thousand next year that sounds like a recipe for disaster um so but yeah we'll see like i think cavalli and persico and those sort of riders really want to watch and blanca vash and so I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Van Vleuten is just going to run away with it next year. Like a lot can happen in a year in cycling. Like Jonas Vingegaard winning the tour wouldn't have expected that in this fashion a year ago. A lot can happen. Um, but yeah, Van Vleuten looks good. What about Mariana Vos, Benji? Probably it's hard to compare. Like Van Vleuten was the best overall GC rider. Vos was probably the best overall stage rider. Um, like top five or ten in like six of them green jersey winner two stages success success um what do you expect from her can she i guess for yumba business just rinse and repeat like yep. just hope she can do it again next year rinse and repeat and try and figure out youngsters that can grow besides her and learn from her along the way and hopefully replace as a collective the results that Voss does alone in the coming years because I don't know. It's from that movie Moneyball. If you can't replace a rider individually, you've got to replace them in a collective. What's that scene? I don't even know anymore. Like, There's a scene in that movie, right? Where they have to replace a certain player and they have to do it with multiple players <laughs> instead? We can't replace Giambi's Giambi. We can't afford him. But we need his on-base percentage. So we're going to get three <laughs> three guys to get his, 
he gets on base. That's the scene. Yeah, replacing Giambi's on base percentage with three, three <laughs> players, one of whom was Giambi's brother, I believe. Um, <laughs> those sort of principles do work in cycling a little bit. Marcus looks fucking good. Rihanna yeah. Marcus, she's really, really good this Tour de France fam. She's like 27, really coming. She was a top domestique, one women's Dutch national champs. Uh, she's got a contract through 24. Um, I'm not sure Moneyball applies in cycling. Like, I agree with the principle. I do. But I think with I like Pagat- with Pagacha, Voss, with like the, the top, top talents, it's you, – you can't. Like I'm not sure it works in cycling. Like if you have Pagacha and you have the money – you will come at worst second yeah. in the tour. Agreed with that. I think um, I agree. Okay, sorry, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. What you mean is what you mean is if Voss goes, you get Marcus, and then you get another three riders like her. Suddenly, on stage five with the fifteen hundred meter four percent kicker, you try a different strategy with these strong rulers, and you try and win the stage yeah. in a different way with multiple riders. It is possible. It is. And I think in the aggregate, you can try stuff like that. But yeah, it's rinse and repeat. Hope I think she also brings up the other riders as well. Like it must be very rewarding riding on the front and then Voss just cleans it. Uh, same with Vivas. But yeah, she had a great Tour de France fan of X Swift. She doesn't look... I mean, her, her pure sprint this year looks better than last year, Voss. Yep. I know she won Gen Wevelgem last year, but this year it looks even better across races. Uh, but yeah, any last thoughts on the Tour de France fan of X Swift, Benji? Any... First we've already spoken about ad nauseum. Is there any other riders you think just keep an eye on them uh, for next year that surprised you? Not necessarily surprising, but Shirin Van Androy is one of the names like winning the wide jersey as expected, but still very talented. Yara Kastelein also doing really well. Marie Lynette did better than I expected at FDJ. I'll be honest about that. Julia Bergström at uh, AG Insurance was second in the wide jersey classification. 32nd in the Tour de France Femme. I think she's really bloody talented and I think she's going to be in World Tour in the coming years. And we've heard a lot about that age insurance team recently because I think Lefebvre is throwing money at it again or something and Sudal might yeah. join that. Rumors in that sense. And Kopecky might break her contract at SD Works to join AG Insurance. Well, no, and- no, 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 he, <laughs> she, no. No, she, nothing's been said about that. What Lefebvre <laughs> said, he, when he heard the Vibas rumor, he said, oh, well, I mean, that could have problems for Kopecky. What's Kopecky <laughs> going to do? I mean, if she wants to come out. <laughs> he said that. It's just shit-stirring, um, which is pretty funny. But, yeah, a lot of teams are moving up, investing. Um, I want to throw a name out there, uh, Veronica Ewers. She ended yep. up coming ninth, seventh on Planche de Belfi, fourth on the gravel stage. She won uh, Sarah Tizit stage, the final one, came second on GC there. This is her first year at World Tour level. She was on Tibco last year, and a lot of riders on Tibco, uh, like who was on Tibco last year, Giganti, Faulkner, and now um, Nina Kessler. But, yeah, I just want to throw you as out there. Yeah, she's 27, but it's her first year in Women's World Tour. I know yeah. Tibco had a good schedule last year. She's still you know her rate of improvement i still think will be very very fast you see that her season this year is really 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 good year so watch out for her next year she could definitely be someone who don't be surprised if she's pushing for top five next year same with labu uh labu's looking really good and she should have won the white jersey if it was u25 but that's the names i want to throw out there i think it was a great race um can't wait to see i think what 
Europe's Europe. There's the Scandinavian races yeah. coming up. I'm not sure how many of the Tour de France Femme of Swift riders will be going there. Then there's European Champs, which normally the women's race has an absolutely stacked start. Ludwig list. has to do Scandinavia, I think. By which law. Ludwig. What, yeah. sorry? By law. Isn't yeah. it, is it in Sweden or Denmark? I don't know. The I Tour of Scandinavia. That- I remember that there was Denmark, Sweden, and Norway as the three countries that would work together on this, but I'm pretty sure that one of the countries is not in the parkour. Damn. Norway has to be in because it comes from the ladies' tour of Norway. And I'm guessing that oh, really? Sweden is probably the extra country. I think Denmark might be the one. I, I might be completely wrong. I'm guessing over the top of my head at this point. She should do it. Yeah, it could have good start lists, uh, but European champs, one-day race, Usually has uh, Van Dyke one last year. Usually had pretty good stylist. But that's all from us. That was our mega Tour de France. Uh, both races recap. Thanks to, for listening. Thanks to Zwift as always for supporting the show. Let us know what you think about all the topics we spoke about. Um, bit of a different style today. I think it was a lot better. Uh, but feedback is as always appreciated. And yeah, thanks for all your support for the month. It's been a grueling month from us. We're very, very tired. We'll be taking a week off. Polonia will have a recap. Uh, overall recap, not daily recaps. Benji's going, I don't know where he's going, actually. I'm going to San Sebastian next week. And Brussels. It's a fairy tale fucking city. How could you not like it? Swans on the lake. Benji won't get that reference. All right, that's it. Oh, you have watched the movie finally. I actually saw it in the past, but I didn't get the reference last time you made it. Now I do. Yeah, I mean, my accents are on point, I guess. Ray Fine's great performance. All right, this is descended. We're off. Bye.